I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is Agents of Impact, our series of interviews with changemakers in and out of impact investing. Other investors also don't like discussing their failure because they see it as a weakness rather than, you know, we should be talking about this because we don't want to keep repeating the same thing. But I, I feel like there just aren't a lot of people who seem to want to have those conversations. So I personally would welcome having a lot more discussion around failure and a lot less discussion about how great we are, which I feel there's far too much of. That's Diane Eisenberg, founder of Kenny Art a family office that provides capital for positive impact in marginalized, primarily rural populations. I spoke with Diane about family wealth, catalytic capital, and impact-first investing. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi, Diane. Hi, David. Let's just make sure everybody knows uh, who you are. Kenny Arth, I think, is a little bit familiar to Impact Alpha readers and listeners because you've been such a great repeat contributor of guest posts, for which we thank you. Um, and we've also covered a number of initiatives of Kenny Arth, including your quick response on small business COVID loans, um, which which I also want to get to in, in a moment. Um, but I don't think we've really had a chance to get to know you personally. So it's great to it's great to be with you, even even on a podcast. Folks can't see you, but uh, I had a, a bit of video around. I think the um, the farmhouse in Wales where you are. Do you want to just um, tell folks you know where you're sitting as we speak? Um, I live full time in rural Wales. I live in the least densely populated county in England or Wales. It's it, it's very rural, um, primarily reliant on agriculture. I've lived here for 35 years and I live on our family farm, which is 350 acres, which is a pretty typical size for a Welsh hill farm. And we farm primarily livestock, although we do have um, chickens and I have a very large uh, vegetable garden for my own use. And livestock means sheep? Uh, she sheep and um, what are called suckler cows, which um, I don't need to go into it, but you basically have um, <laughs> the cows. Um, you have to always have the cows and then you put them into calves. So you're, you're selling their, their calves um, for meat once they're of a certain size. And everything is grass and fed. Everything is grass fed. We grow I was going to ask grass. you. So, are you? Is it? It's it, grass fed. That and 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 is it all regenerative and carbon negative? Um, I would I would call it sustainable farming, which is uh, one uh -huh. of the reasons why we're very focused on sustainable farming, agriculture, and rural resilience. Indeed. Okay. All all good topics to dig into. Let me just um for folks who need a refresher, I'm just going to actually. I pulled up the headlines uh, that we've had in Impact Alpha, um, and then I thought the headlines actually tell tell the story. So let me just read a few of the headlines, and if folks are interested, they can obviously go into the site and, and, and click on them. Um, uh, uh, and this was the, the CDFI, Community Development uh, COVID loan story, but with zero interest loans and deposits, wealthy families rush capital to rural lenders and impoverished communities. Uh, another one. For Kenny Art's impact first portfolio, catalytic just means reasonable. Another one. How Kenny Art is seeking higher impact on rural livelihoods while preserving its own capital. And um, and 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 the last one, which I think was uh, was your your column, fighting poverty and remaining rich. So um, that last one was was this whole notion of impact first capital preservation. Um, which is, I think, a, 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 an innovation that Kenny Arth has shared with other uh, impact investors, particularly um, uh, family offices like yourself. So now that's the that's the background. Kenny Arth is a, is your family office? Is that right? It is. That is right. 
describe it a little bit and, and what how it came to be and what you're what you're trying to do with it. Um, well, we're a single family office and I founded it in 2013 and it manages both our family's private foundation, which is the Eisenberg Family Charitable Foundation, as well as my own personal assets. And certainly from the beginning, I absolutely knew what I wanted to focus on, which was deploying capital into marginalized and vulnerable communities. But um, I was uncertain what the precise path would be to do that. Um, for a little background on this, um, this was something that virtually happened overnight to me. So I was living you know, my life here in Wales. I've been a teacher. I've been a community activist. I've worked for Fair Trade Foundation in Wales. Um, I obviously have worked on the farm, but I had never worked in <laughs> finance. So, um, you know, it was in some ways something that happened very quickly and something that I, although I didn't feel prepared from a um, expertise in finance, I certainly felt that I knew what I wanted to do. Just to be clear, the, um, when when you say it happened quickly, I, I think you mean came into wealth, and the wealth is, that, I, I believe, okay. from your your father and 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 neighbors' industries. If yes. I if I read so, my I bios mean, correctly, I, I, to yes. clarify, um, apologies if that was a bit vague. Um, basically, my my father um, became. Um, insanely wealthy in my opinion um over a relatively <laughs> short period of time yeah, this would be a whole nother conversation about my views on um you know the kinds of compensations that people were getting but at least he built a company um rather than um killing a company and getting the same comp compensation as often happens but um mm -hmm. this all really happened when i was an adult so it's it's not something that's part of my background. My my father was um, his parents were immigrants. One could say he was hungry, and um, I, I was the daughter of, of a very ambitious, um, hungry business person who ultimately mm -hmm. seemed to have a gift for for building companies. And when he became um, incapacitated, um, which was over a very short period of time, I then found myself custodian of our, our family assets. So it, it was very much um, focusing on how I would achieve the, the goal that I already knew that I had, which really had been formulated by my personal experiences living here in Wales and also my background in, in public health, where I had spent time working in Bangladesh and what I view as basic human rights, food, shelter, healthcare, clean water, sanitation, energy, education, work, um, were, were things that people didn't have access to. So I think a lot of those beliefs really underpin our, our work at Kenny Arth on, on rural livelihoods. Well, that's, that's fascinating because, as you say, you had these experiences in Bangladesh and elsewhere, and you, you then also had this now, this new experience of, of having uh, uh, considerable wealth. And, and, you know, it's one of these things that's awkward to talk about, I find, um, in impact investing is that there is quite a lot of wealth involved and folks are often talking about poverty and they're not so much often talking about wealth. Um, uh, and so it's it's always been refreshing to me how kind of forthright and just direct you are about talking about your own wealth. Have you, has that a, 
I don't know how quite how to ask the question, but I mean, is that a is can you what can you say about the journey of of sort of just understanding all of these um, uh, you know dynamics and perhaps contradictions? I mean, I, I feel as I, I, I think I've used the word twice already. I feel like I'm a custodian. I don't really feel like it's my money or my family's money. Um, I feel it's like pretty random and arbitrary that I happen to be the daughter of this man who happened to make a huge amount of money. Um, you know, and I have pretty strong views about, um, I suppose, um, being the responsibility that, that goes along with having all this money. Um, and I, I do feel like that is, is reflected in the kind of family office that we run and in the sort of orientation that we have, I guess, um, with influences, I, I do think that my father had a big influence on me. My father, um, was somebody who really was orientated towards turning around poorly run businesses. Um, he was of the age where, you know, innovation was really kind of a, a foreign word, I would say, outside something like the space program. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and the whole Silicon Valley money proposition was something that um, was not part of, of, of his world. And I, I think that that, sort of money is in some ways a, a different kind of um, what, what goes on there and the kind of investing that goes on from there is, is quite different from, you know, what, what I was um, familiar with, I guess. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I think that may inform this impact first capital preservation strategy, which I want to dig into a little bit. I've always loved this quote of yours from, from impact alpha a while back. If you are rich today and invest in a manner that generates deep impact and returns your capital with a yield in line with inflation and reasonable expenses, you will still be rich tomorrow. And um, uh, it's just so straightforward. Um, but it means, I think, that you don't need to chase, you know, so-called market rate returns um, if, if you're if you're if, if, if what you're doing with your capital is is impact first. Just how did you come to develop all that and, and, and come to that kind of formulation? I, I think um, actually that it was a result of realizing that for the focus that we have, um, double bottom line returns just didn't work. Because originally when I got involved in this, I, I, I did a lot of reading. I'd never really, I'd never heard of impact investing. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to meet Greg and, you know, we were able to work and we still do work incredibly closely together. Um, as that's, Greg, directors. Knight, Knight. that's Greg, Greg Nichen, your co-director. Yeah. Nitsen. Yeah. Oh, Nichen. Oh, yeah. actually it's, oh, it's Nichen. Okay. That's, that's it's one Nichen. thing I didn't know it's, how to pronounce. It's Kenny Arth, Kenny Arth and Nichen. We got those okay, Kenny Arth. Today. For the record, it's, it's Kenny Arth, <laughs> which is a, a well, which is a Welsh word, I would guess. Yeah. Kenny, so, Kenny Arth. This, sorry, this is a digression, but people do want to know what Kenny Arth sorry. means. Um, <laughs> sorry. Well, then we'll interestingly get enough, um, most Welsh words mean something, but um, many of my I live in Welsh-speaking Wales, so my my children actually attended um, Welsh language uh, elementary school. Um, we're in one of the pockets of Welsh speakers, which is a very different language from Gaelic, 
Gaelic and English, related to Breton, if anyone's interested. And um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> sorry. Um, so it, it doesn't mean anything. But, you know, when you have fil- fields, for example, you would have a field, um, Kai, Kai Gwyn, uh, Kai is field, Gwyn is white. So if you had white stones in the field, they would call that field Kai Gwyn. So virtually everything is named here, like every field, every hill, but our the our farm doesn't actually mean anything. Oh, that's the name of the farm. Yeah, that's the name of the farm. Gotcha. Okay, so it's the name of the farm and the name of the the name of the farm and the name of the fund, and it doesn't mean anything. It can be filled with meaning. Okay, now back to, to the meaning you're filling it with. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I suppose back to how um, we came up with, with capital preservation was, you know, originally I, I really bought into to the, the double bottom line um, solution as being able to develop markets that I felt had been failed through both philanthropy and formal development. I come from a public health development background, and it was clear to me that um, that was not an effective long-term strategy and neither had philanthropy. So I was willing to accept the the proposition that um, you could develop these markets and you could, you know, do do well and do good. It, It became fairly apparent quite quickly because I suppose it was almost quite random, but one of our first in, investments was in the energy access um, area in um, so solar home systems. We we uh, basically uh, predominantly focus on debt, and and we continue to do that to this day. Um, I can explain why later if you ask me. Um, so we really ended up getting in the position where we had a number of, of outstanding um, debt to a number of different solar home, either intermediaries or direct investments. And we were having to restructure our loans because the, the default rate w- was just um, out of control. And this tended to be in the very you know deep, rural, most marginalized agrarian areas, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, which is where we wanted to focus. So it became abundantly clear to us that that these models were not working. In the meantime, there was like you know this tap was on full stream of, of equity that was flowing in. So it kind of blurred for a, quite a long time um, the actual reality of the situation. As money poured um, which, into the, uh, to that, the off-grid companies, but yeah, but the to the off-grid weren't. companies, and and I think you probably know the number of companies now. A huge number of companies have either completely pivoted to something else and have gone, you know, up market, peri-urban, like off off-grid electric. Um, there are other countries, Mobisol, as you know, went bust. You know, they, you know, there are a lot of them, or a lot of them were. Um, sort of bought up by like ng has bought quite a few right. and i think at, at fairly low valuations um you know so i do think there's um a shaking out now that's going to make sense but there's still from our perspective the concern was always the consumer and what was happening to, to the consumer and i was very disturbed by the fact that a lot of these entrepreneurs seemed to not care at all what was happening to them you know, because they had sold them a promise, they actually weren't able to come up with a model that these rural, very 
poor people who really had little disposable income could have could afford. And, you know, they had put this out. Money had already gone on. They put down deposits and they were having to return to to using kerosene and, and candles with with a useless asset um, because it had been remotely turned off that probably was going to be repossessed. So, you know, that was the first indicator to me that this was a, a false promise, that, that mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. Uh, double bottom um, strategy was not going to work with the markets that we want to move move in and we want to work in and we have deep com- commitment towards meaning meaning truly low income and not and as you say many yeah, of these enterprises truly low income and many and of these enterprises move that. up move up into a into a lower middle kind of uh, they have you know. they do and also when you have con- i mean there's that whole friction when you have conventional equity investors that, that are you know looking to 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 the exit then of course there's that always that pressure to um, you know, capture market share, to get the price point down, to increase margins, and the easiest way to do that is to move upstream. It's mm-hmm. very, very challenging to work in the with the populations um, and the sectors that, that we are committed to, and and hence why capital preservation was born. So you know, this it's not like you know we we were particularly ennobled. You know, if if that double market double bottom return, you know, market rate capital had worked, we would have used that. And then we would have had more money to commit and devote towards helping to um, ensure that the most marginalized populations and communities had access to quality goods and services at an affordable price point. But this then leads you, just to connect the dots, this leads you to capital preservation because you say a different kind of capital is required that is not that it, ma- exact. profit maximizing venture money and but it's not philanthropy either and you and you figured out that debt was the instrument and you came up with kind of facilities or mechanisms that that that, that might work exactly but i mean as you're well aware i think since we started what i often find amusing is when we started this was um what we did was concessionary capital and 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 there were i had over the years um, there were a few little sort of snide comments about what we did, you know, that, we, you know, concession- in the impact like, there's no need for this. Con- yeah. For concessionary capital. Now we've been elevated. We're catalytic, you know, because all of a sudden I think there's a, a, a recognition, which we are deeply grateful for by a lot of foundations who, who we work closely with. Um, you know, MacArthur is one. Kellogg is one. There, there are numerous foundations. We, we just, um, worked with the Schmidt Foundation and also with Packard on the um, loan that you that we the fund that we got together for PPP that you had mentioned earlier. Um, but I feel like there's um, much more of a stake in a ground in the ground with a number of these foundations to use their capital in a way that you know the blended finance that works well with our capital and um, a lot of development banks as well. I, I do feel like um, the high net worths haven't really stepped up yet. Um, well, that's a that's that's I, what I, I would that's what I would I would love your your thoughts on that because this catalytic capital. I will confess that we are part of that perhaps rebranding or elevation. Um, in full disclosure, we've had a, a a sponsorship with the Catalytic Capital Consortium to do just that, um, and so we've elevated uh, various examples of that kind of catalytic capital, which, as you say, you know, maybe 
quote, concessionary on the one hand, but is also can be quite high leverage, certainly from an impact basis on the other hand. And so if what you're trying to do is, is move markets or change systems, we're all very much in vogue these days. Um, catalytic capital obviously well, is, is, is a very powerful tool. And frankly, the part that's in most short supply in the impact investing ecosystem which is why family offices like 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 Kenny Arth are so are considered so key. But you say maybe other families offices are not stepping up so much. So let me know your thoughts about that. Well, I I mean, I I know they're not stepping up as much as they could be because we're it's amazing how often we're asked to be that that piece. So if we're asked, you know, we're often. Um, you know, the, the, the tranche that is subordinated, um, you know, which mm -hmm. is, which is, you know, it, it generally it is catalytic. It doesn't have to be catalytic, but um, as in, you know, the return may, I mean, the whole concept to me of catalytic capital, again, isn't necessarily a number. It's sort of like, it's what's required. So we actually have some investments that I view as, as catalytic, and we may be getting uh, a market rate return for that. Um, not many, but we do have some <laughs> of them. But the kind of, the lens that we use is much more. What is the impact of this investment? And as you mentioned, leverage is one of those. And for a number of them, it is a less than market rate return, and and often. Um, even more so the, the real need for subordinated dollars, because particularly with a number of development banks, the DFC is a very good example. That's just a requirement for them. You know, so that's a requirement a that they have a requirement that they have some risk protection from somebody that, that subordinated they have, exactly. to them. And, and you know what? I, at first I just thought it was it, hysterical that I, you know, that Kenny Arth has to, you know, protect the the United States. You know, I it, 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 I find it highly amusing, actually. You know, that our dollars need to protect American dollars, but I I absolutely understand um, if that's what they need to do to get the money out the door. Um, and we have a, a very good working relationship with DFC, and we have been subordinate to them in a, in a number of funds. Um, including, as you may know, the, the Global Partnerships um, Impact First Development Fund, because I I just wanted to mention this because um, I know how big you are on 10x leverage. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. And I actually was thinking, and the only investment that we've had that has actually had 10x leverage as far as we were able to lever 10x was with this DFC investment that we did so we invested along with Kellogg Foundation in the subordinate tranche, and we were able to um, catalyze $10 for every $1 that we put in, and it was a $55 million um, impact first. Um, and just, and just, fund, just so mentioned. folks understand, just so folks understand that, and that fund would, would go towards what kinds of things? It's, it's with um, Global Partnerships. So Global Partnerships is, again, it's... Um, an, organization that's based in Seattle and we ha are invested in I believe four of their funds um, they are a financial intermediary they work primarily with microfinance organizations in in Latin America in sub-saharan Africa and what's unique about them first of all is 
Um, they're a nonprofit organization. They um, generally people have notes with them and you generally have a, a 2% return. So people understand that they're not going to be getting a market rate return. But what you get in exchange is, is you know, hugely, highly impactful um, specialist MFIs um, where they have a commitment to be serving the most, the the poorest segment of the population, because there's a whole, um, you can look at whether people are earning less than $3 and 20 cents. Um, then there's $5 and 50 cents they, they kind of are, are change it every few years, but I believe that's where it's at now. And the poorest would be $3 and 20 cents a day. And to ensure that you're serving those populations who are populations who Gen, tend to have the most lumpy incomes, tend to be the most insecure, tend to have no collateral, it can be more challenging for a microfinance institution. So they provide um, working capital debt to those financial um, CDFIs, not CDFIs, I, microfinance institutions, I apologize for that. <laughs> and they um, have found, we went, uh, we went to um, Guatemala in October and it was just incredible the partners that they have been able to find. A lot of those also are nonprofits that are, that are serving as microfinance institutions, but the kind of add-on that they had, the um, technical assistance, the, the partnerships with health care providers, um, it, it, was, it was pretty phenomenal. So that compared to sort of a vanilla tier one microfinance institution that you you might be um, if you are investing in um, an MBI is they're light years away from each other mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. the kind of impact that that you're getting so I think um, that that nuance I, I guess that's what I would really like to emphasize to people who are interested in this the difference that accepting a lower rate of return can have in who you're impacting and how you're impacting them is huge. It's absolutely huge. And I want you to know that Global Partnerships virtually has never lost a dollar. So, well, that you know, which is why, you know, we have total confidence in them um, in, in anything they do. And with this particular fund, they're able to go even deeper because they were able to get capital from the DFC at, at um, I probably, at, 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 at a very uh, generously uh, low return. <laughs> I, I just want to pick up on your, um, you, you raised the CDFIs, at, which are, which are in effect the domestic versions, and there's parallels of the sort of financial systems of the microfinance institutions overseas. But you've also been working now, particularly in the COVID context, with CDFIs, community development finance institutions, in the U.S., also serving underserved populations. So there's sort of a little parallelism between the global context and the U.S. context in in COVID, both of which the mainstream financial systems don't reach down, like, as you say, to the needs of many businesses and, and individuals. Um, so the, the, the loan facility you guys helped put together uh, for CDFIs, as again, you said you were the maybe the token family office that would come in with that kind of capital? I think a few others came in after you. Um, well, I mean, I, I, as I said, we were we were delighted um, with the interest that um, others had. Um, the Olamina Fund also participated in, in, in the, the small fund that we 
well, it wasn't small, the $11 million fund that we raised, uh, as as did, did Packard and the Schmidt Foundation. And I think Greg, um, who will give all credit for doing this, um, turned that around in about 11 days. Um, so that was that, that was one of the staggering things was just the yeah. speed with which that came well together. it was needed because basically um a lot of these um cdfis actually didn't have the correct certification to be ppp providers so they what happened was we were able to use rcac which is california based who did have that certification and then other cdfis who were part of a um persistent poverty coalition um, were able to get the loans processed through RCAC for their 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 customers. And, and a lot of people really were having these sort of poor businesses who didn't have relationships with mainstream banks were really having difficulty accessing PPP. And, and um, this facility enabled that. Um, I feel like just to elaborate on CDFIs and the point that you have brought up that there are a lot of parallels for people being, um, you know, first of all, financially excluded, which is, you know, sort of the function of a CDFI is financial inclusion as is an MFI, um, often with, mm -hmm. with, you know, technical assistance and, and other things that is really required by um, the population who needs these loans. Um, with, with the CDFIs, we actually launched a program around three years ago because it became apparent to me, as someone who doesn't live in the U.S., I haven't lived in the U.S. for 35 years, um, we went and attended a conference in um, New Orleans, and I'd never been to New Orleans, I'd never been to Louisiana, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with shame at uh, actually holding an American passport, when I saw not only the consequences, the negative consequences that Katrina had had with the rebuilding of the city that actually further marginalized um, what was a great African-American city, um, you know, with um, changes in the education system where they had, a, a, you know, a robust, if, if not necessarily a high achieving school system that was really the gateway for the middle class African-American um, community to be built and, and education was a, a pathway. So it was working in hospitals and um, they complete, they just closed down that education system and opened up charter schools and they virtually fired everyone. And the same thing with hospitals, um, you know, and people were basically, um, with, you know, they within the tragedy of people having to leave um, and being housed in other cities almost as refugees within the United States, that term was actually used. In the meantime, whole swathes of land seemed to be bought up. And, you know, it, it was a really horrific story, um, you know, of systemic racism, which obviously now is coming to the forefront and I'm hoping is going to be. A, a movement that people feel that they can, investors really can focus on. Um, so we, we fortunately, we we decided then. I, I decided I wanted to have a, a U.S. Um, program, and it would be focused. We 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 did some research, and it became clear that the best way that we could achieve this was through investing in CDFIs. So we already had quite a strong relationship with a number of CDFIs and they, because we were focusing on the five persistent poverty areas, because our focus is poverty, um, 
uh, we were able to pull this together quite quickly. And of course, because of the, you know, systemic and historic racial in injustice, a lot of people in poverty are people of color. Well, and that's becoming even more apparent in the COVID context. And you guys had this um, this post uh, uh, in, at the beginning of it um, that said, you know, we are lenders, not heroes. And you've always had this uh, very keen appreciation of like very practical work. Um, the, the line from that that I remember is, um, you know, I, I think you were taking gentle pokes actually at, at Impact Alpha and me because I had written something called about making this shitstorm matter. And I was promoting the notion that there was this disruptive opportunity where some where where new things could 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 blossom and I, which i do i do think uh, i do think is true and i'd love your thoughts on but you guys said um while things may be different you know um it may not look all that different for poor lives of poor people around the planet they will bear the brunt of economic disruption social unrest and illness um uh you know that there will um as in all crisis, their plight will be highlighted, aid will be secured, and then the world will move on, as will most impact investors. And I was like, you know, I'm sorry to say, you're. I think you're right. Um, but um, you've always, you've always uh, just um, kind of tried to take the air out of the magical thinking of some of us. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say that that is true. Um, I, I think part of it is because you know we talked about earlier that I view myself as a custodian. And I, I really do feel that in, unless we're, we're doing a, you know, a really, really great job at, at staying, you know, laser sharp focused on, on what our objectives are. Um, you know, I, I, I am sort of letting down the, the, the legacy of, of, of my, my, uh, my father and, you know, what I deeply believe in. And I, as a, person i i'm i'm a natural skeptic and i just part of my problem with all this or um part of the difficulty that i have is that I, i'm also um a very honest person and very eager to talk about the difficulties the problems um you know why things aren't working and i find that that seems to be problematic in the world of finance because People are afraid to to talk about this you know, because as an individuals, funds, sectors, um, people who are not on my side, I have the money, I can say whatever I want. You know, people who actually are asking for mm -hmm. the money because they, they're, they're scared that if they actually are, you know, open and candid, that flow of money might stop coming. And I feel like it, other investors also don't like discussing their failure because they see it as a weakness rather than, you know, we should be talking about this because we don't want to keep repeating the same thing. But I, I feel like there just aren't a lot of people who seem to want to have those conversations. So I personally would welcome having a lot more discussion around failure and a lot less discussion about how great we are, which I feel there's far too much of. What do you have in mind? Um, well, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to propose is the one-tenth challenge um, rather than the 10x challenge to those investors who have the flexibility in their investment returns. So this is a challenge that you just allocate one-tenth of your portfolio into impact-first capital preservation opportunities. You get higher impact in your areas that you champion, racial justice, gender equality, climate, and you don't need to go 100% 
all in with this as we have for it to be meaningful. If everybody did a little bit, it would be hugely transformative. And I think that David sort of alluded to this in the article that we had written about COVID, but you know, with the outsized impact that COVID's having and will continue to have on the poor and the global awakening around systemic racism, we desperately need additional impact first capital to accelerate this world getting closer to becoming equitable and just. So I throw my gauntlet down. So the one-tenth challenge for impact first capital preservation um, and we would have a foot in the door. Folks could see what uh, <laughs> capital <laughs> preservation actually may turn out to be not a not a not a bad strategy all around, Diane. So thank you for that. We're going to uh, trumpet that in, in Impact Alpha, and um, maybe that's the the agenda for our next uh, our next our next conversation. I so welcome thank it. Thank you, Diane Eisenberg. And uh, thank you, David. That's going to do it for this episode of Agents of Impact. You can read more about Diane Eisenberg and Kenny Arth at impactalpha.com. Subscribers to Impact Alpha receive our daily email brief, including deal flow, job postings, and original features, as well as full access to impactalpha.com, Agents of Impact conference calls, and much more. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Diane Eisenberg and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. See you again soon.